As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. And so I think that it's a combination of all those things, right? Long-term smart investment in organizing, telling better stories, ringing the alarm, shining a light on the vote suppression roaches and watching them scatter, and people willing to do everything that they can to save their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was delighted to have the chance to speak with Ense Ufot, the CEO of the New Georgia Project, a group that works to register and civically engage people in that state. As much as anyone in the country, Ensei has spent the 2020 election cycle right in the middle of the political fight. She's been working to organize Georgia for seven years, since Stacey Abrams talked her into it. We discussed how they've worked to build an organizing culture that could transform Georgia in the face of concerted opposition and attack from many of those in power. It's really something to see the recent statewide results for Biden and to contemplate the work in front of her with the upcoming Senate runoffs. So with that as background, a quick word with our sponsor, then my interview with Ensei Ufot of the New Georgia Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? So I'm Ense Ufat, uh, CEO of the New Georgia Project and the New Georgia Project Action Fund. Immigrant from Nigeria. I was raised in Southwest Atlanta. I'm not, not quite a Georgia native, but you know, I have 35 years on the ground here. Began my career as a labor lawyer and a union organizer before I was introduced eventually to Lauren Growargo, who introduced me to Stacey Abrams. And the rest, as they say, is history. (laughs) Uh, How old were you when you came from Nigeria? I was a baby, uh, maybe second grade. Ah, that must have been quite a change. It was. I mean, your whole world is your family at that point. It definitely represented a shift. It was quite the change. We already had family here. My dad's brother was here. Both my dad and my uncle went to Georgia Tech. My aunt was a Spelman graduate. And so my 
parents and aunts and uncles were a part of that sort of first generation of post-independence Nigerians who left to go to the UK and the US to get educated and they were supposed to come back and rebuild the country. What did your parents do? Uh, So my dad was an architect and a city planner. And my mother was a counselor by profession, but was a domestic worker and then ended up working before she retired as a fundraiser. So you must have been a pretty good student if you went on to Georgia Tech and a law degree. What was college like for you? So it's funny, college was difficult because I am also very social. (laughs) (laughs) An extrovert. Yes, I'm an extrovert, an extreme extrovert. And so like I get energy from other people. I'm like, what are we doing today, guys? (laughs) Party. That is wholly and completely incompatible with the rigorous academic (laughs) expectations at uh, Georgia Tech. I mean, I was an okay student. I graduated from high school at the top of my class. I wasn't the salutatorian or valedictorian, but like in the top 10, I couldn't even sniff the top 10 of my college graduating class. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I ended up basically this hybrid major of psychology and computer science. So human and computer interaction, I thought that I was going to design dashboards, entertainment consoles for vehicles or work with artificial intelligence or something along those lines. I ended up going to law school. Why law school? A, I was an activist and the child of activists and organizers. B, I took an internship one summer at CNN. And it was the summer that the UN World Conference Against Racism happened in South Africa. And so I spent the summer writing stories that were focused on youth, talking about racism, the UN conference, the decade of the African, and like what the UN does, what international law was, what international cooperation looks like, and had my mind blown by the international community got much more sophisticated in my analysis about the U.S. and its role in the world, and then met a ton of lawyers and people with law degrees who did not practice and who were out doing good work and started seeing like it could help me become a better writer. And if I did want to argue human rights cases at The Hague, like I would have the things that I needed. It opened up the world to me, that internship that summer. And as I mentioned before, I was a very social person. I was a sorority girl and uh, I got a D in organic chemistry. And so pre-med was off the table. Law school was on. (laughs) You, You mentioned that you were an activist and a child of activists. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So there was a previous round of immigrant rights organizing that happened in the U.S. uh, that my parents were very much a part of. My mother and father definitely um, worked to organize the Nigerian community. I think one of the things that we are most challenged by in this moment, and it continues to endure, is that the divisions that exist in the dominant society also exist in movement. 
and particularly in the immigrant rights movement. And so the racism um, and sort of xenophobia, which is odd, but it, it exists. So Latinos organize over here. Africans and Caribbeans organize over here. Asian Americans organize over here. And I'm not sure if European immigrants or Canadian immigrants feel like they are a part of the larger and broader immigrant rights movement. That was some of the work of my parents to organize across the African diaspora. My mom has a show for almost 30 years uh, here in Atlanta called the African experience worldwide. And it was news and music from across the diaspora. So she'd start with Africa, um, news and music from Africa, news and music from the Caribbean, and then news and music from African-Americans, from the African-American community. How did that growing activism in you intersect with party politics? I've always felt that the United States was way too big for only two political parties. It's it's insane. And as the current Republican Party sort of continues to shift to the right, but also to shift to a place that's sort of unrecognizable and untenable, you know, the Democratic Party or people who align with their party platform becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, which also makes it more difficult to get a progressive agenda passed because of the negotiations that have to happen under the big tent before the party can arrive at a platform. And I've known that since I was 13. <laughs> Part of that is because of the Dixiecrats, right? So you have Georgia um, and the Georgia Democratic Party and Atlanta politics. And so you have the Atlanta of Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young. But then you also have powerful, racist, white, Southern Democrats that are in the same party. I don't think I had the language to articulate it at the time, but the idea of building independent, progressive political power in the South, if I give myself an opportunity to sit and reflect on it, it definitely goes back to those early experiences as an eager, active volunteer on Georgia Democratic Party campaigns with my dad. Can you just quickly trace how your career led you to New Georgia Project. Tell me about the steps along the way. My steps to the New Georgia Project are very windy, very circuitous, and not at all linear. So graduated from law school, worked for an energy company in the Midwest in their general counsel's office and did that for a number of years. Made very good money, but was not fulfilled and didn't feel like I was leveraging all that my village had invested in me. And so wanted to find work that, you know, aligned with my values. And so did a bunch of informational interviews and ended up building a relationship with the chair of the Democratic Party in Montgomery County, Ohio, where Dayton is who was also uh, a leader in AFSCME, the Public Employees Union, got hired, worked for AFSCME for a number of years, um, moved out throughout labor, moved into leadership in SCIU, 
and then moved to D.C. um, after the election of Obama to work for another union, which was the American Association of University Professors, AAAP. Um, I lovingly and jokingly referred to them as a fake union. Like That opportunity really stretched and grew me and grew my leadership because working with faculty uh, and academics and people who are incentivized for their individual contributions to a body of knowledge, and then to try to get them to act collectively, which is the bread and butter of of labor unions. It was hard. I ended up moving to Canada to work uh, for its sister organization, if you will, um, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, where I was a deputy executive director for a number of years. I jokingly say that I went into activist retirement or organizer retirement because when you are negotiating labor agreements with employers who don't even recognize your right to exist, it's a world away from Canadian employers who don't see unions as existential threats. So I did that for a number of years. Um, and then one of my very good friends, introduced me to Stacey Abrams. We had brunch on New Year's Day in 2014 and had a conversation about, at the time, there were 1.2 million Georgians, Black Georgians, uh, Brown Georgians, and um, who were eligible to vote but completely unregistered. And she had been looking at top of the ticket performances over the past decade plus, and the successful Republican was winning Georgia elections by a margin of 250,000 votes over and over and over again. So there were nearly five times the number of people of color in the state who were eligible, who could swing the results of any election in the state but who were eligible to vote and not registered. And no one was doing that work at scale. We talked on New Year's Day. We had brunch. I loved it. I thought the idea was fascinating. I told her all the reasons why it would never work in Georgia because I knew the Georgia Democratic Party and I knew the voting rights and civil rights establishment. And this idea is fascinating, but it won't ever get off the ground. And here are all the reasons why. And to her credit, and because she's brilliant, she parried and had a response and a solid solution for all of the you know, supposed deficiencies that I had pointed out. I go back home to Canada, I work, and I, I move on. And then I get a call in the summer that said, you know, it's time. New Georgia Projects is going to be, we're going to do this. It's time for you to come home. And that's exactly what I did. I packed up my truck and I drove the 24 hours from Ottawa back home to Atlanta and started working for the New Georgia Project the next day as the executive director. So what was it about Stacey Abrams that made that brunch so pivotal for you? I mean, you said she's brilliant and that she was able to parry your arguments. But tell me more about her. 
Stacey was the minority leader in the Georgia State Legislature and is in a lot of ways the architect behind the sort of shift that we're seeing in Georgia right now. As the leader of the caucus, she thought about how to leverage these demographic shifts that are happening in the state of Georgia um, and how to bring back a, a culture of organizing. People will know her for a lot of things, right? Uh, romance novelist, uh, tax attorney. She almost America's first Black woman governor, but at her core, she is an organizer and was able to, again, identify talent and bring people together and then organize people and organize resources in order to execute on her vision for a new Georgia. When you joined New Georgia Project, what was the state of that enterprise at that moment? So the original vision for the New Georgia Project was getting Georgians registered for the ACA, signed up for the Affordable Care Act. Um, that the federal government or the state of Georgia was not investing any resources at all in getting Georgians signed up for the ACA. In fact, they were hostile to it. There needed to be an intervention. Someone needed to organize people and organize some money to go out and get Georgians to sign up to do deep you know, education, popular education, so that Georgians knew what the opportunity was. And then they could eventually sign up. Because at this point, the elected leadership in the state was perfectly happy leaving billions of dollars on this table to prevent Georgians from having access to health care. When the reality set in that Republicans in Georgia were happy to let their constituents die, because of their ideological opposition to Obamacare, the sense of urgency settled in on all of us. And the idea was like, yes, we need to continue to do what we can to help people sign up for the Affordable Care Act, but we have to flip the Georgia State House and the Georgia Senate. We have to build power that we don't have, and we have to elect folks who are not only champions, but who see themselves as co-governing with the people, because these people are happy to let us and our families die because of their politics. And so when I came, they were in the middle of shifting to doing large-scale voter registration, working with a ton of vendors and trying to sort of stand up a proper program that focused on voter registration. Um, and that's what I came in to do. How big was it at the time? Stacy, Lauren, and myself. Three. What did it feel like? I mean, you had left a career which had started out being not that fulfilling, but had moved into the labor union and, and gotten more so. Did you feel like, I'm home, this is what I'm meant to do? Was it grueling? What was it like in the office? What was it like in your heart? I never thought that this was going to be possible. An activist who cared deeply about politics, like very precocious, but like very serious as a, as a kid. I never thought that I could work on progressive politics in my home state. Like I never thought that that was going to be an option for me. And so it was at once thrilling, but also terrifying because I knew 
the hostility that we would be met with when you start thinking about building progressive political infrastructure. It turns out like you're not paranoid if it's true, right? <laughs> <laughs> that you know, we're still under investigation by the Secretary of State or uh, the sort of Ethics Commission. At the time, you know, in 2014, there was an investigation into the work of the New Georgia Project. We'd registered 86,419 people to vote by the voter registration deadline. Only 46,000 of those folks had made it on the voter rolls. So there were 40,000 people that we registered that had not shown up on the voter rolls. And when we approached the Secretary of State at the time, Brian Kemp, our now asterisk governor, they replied with a subpoena for our donor records, all of our communications, all of our training materials, all of our voter registration forms. They were trying to have a chilling effect on us and the work that we do. In Georgia, the penalty for voter registration fraud, which is what they were accusing us of, carries with it a penalty of up to 10 years in prison and $100,000 in fines. They had been getting away with this for decades, for years, right? But because of the way that we have constructed our program, I can tell you for all nearly half a million Georgians that we've registered to vote, when they were registered to vote, what time of day, what the weather was like, what the organizer was wearing, what housing project or church basement or street corner um, the interaction had. And we get written consent from the people that we register to vote for so that we can follow up with them, so that we can GOTV them, which is get out the vote, so that we can send them voter education materials. So we had been prepared for this moment. Again, out of an abundance of caution, people called us paranoid. And it turns out we were right. I mean, that kind of hostility from people in power has got to be scary. How did you guys feel when you were served with subpoenas, even being prepared? We were ready. Listen, what the kids in the world say, that if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And it was our ethos that we would do everything that we can to plant our feet, flex our knees, embrace ourselves for impact and prepare for any eventuality. That there's a clarity about the goals that we are trying to accomplish. And scenario planning is a part of our culture so that we can be ready for whatever comes. But no, it doesn't feel good. But here's the thing. Republicans go Republican. Conservatives are going to do what conservatives do. And we were prepared for that. I think the thing that shocked me, I mean, Stacey knew her colleagues in the legislature, but the thing that shocked me was the hostility from Black Democrats. Those relationships have been mended. And, you know, we very much are a part of an ecosystem now. But in the beginning, I think that people saw the New Georgia Project as this sort of secret, ambitious vanity vehicle for Stacey's political ambitions. I think that people now know that we are a premier grassroots organization and an independent political home and that we're not going anywhere. But in the beginning, it was not met with welcome arms. Whether in, in politics or in business, whenever you're new, you're disruptive, you change some of the power dynamics, people feel like their space is being invaded, they often respond negatively. What did you learn about 
building a new organization from that experience from coming in so early? I learned a few things. One, that you need to be absolutely clear about your vision and what the interventions are that you are going to make. Like your why is very important because people aren't always going to see it. People aren't always going to get it. You will get attacked. There will be haters. Knowing your who and your why, I think, is the thing that anchors you. Um, I think knowing your who and your why is also really important because when you do start to win or when people do start to see the vision, there will be tons of opportunities for people who want to leverage the success, who want to partner, who want to give you money. And that is a really good feeling, but it also can be really distracting. Uh, Money isn't good money. And so having the clarity to say that we are a a nonpartisan voter registration organization that is focused on Georgians of color, youth and women and femmes, right? New Americans, people who've just become naturalized citizens. That's who we do this for. That's who we organize with. It's registration, it's education, and it's mobilization. And moving people to the polls, but also moving people to act. And having that clarity means that I can confidently turn down resources that drag us away from our people and that drag us away from our mission. Um, And a lot of smaller organizations, newer organizations, deal with things like mission creep because you're trying to make payroll, you're trying to make your budget, and you will take a foundation's money in order to help accomplish your bottom line, even if the things that they are asking of you pull you away from why you say you're here. Where did you find money in the early days? (laughs) Out of the mud, basically (laughs) hand-to-hand combat. In the early days, there were labor. It was labor. Labor unions who believed in in infrastructure and building power and some high net worth individuals, right, who – you know, had an analysis. It was clear that they shared our values based on the candidates that they supported. We went around making the argument that if you have a vision for a progressive South or a vision for a South that's a battleground where parties and electeds have to compete for hearts and minds and votes, don't just invest in the campaigns of these progressive candidates. You need to build an ecosystem around them because we want to win, obviously, but then we need to be able to defend those wins beyond one election cycle. We need to invest in a culture of organizing. And so for every dollar that you give to a candidate, give one to a grassroots organization that is sustaining that work, that is creating a political home for the folks that we are going to need to turn out every election. Some people bought it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we're here. And what was your role in the early days and how did it develop over time? I've been the executive director and then our board changed my title to CEO. My role has always been sort of Chief fundraiser, bottle washer, (laughs) train conductor, uh, strategist, referee, spokesperson for the organization. How has the organization grown over time? 
Since we launched, we have hired, trained, and deployed about 3,000 organizers and canvassers across the state of Georgia. I'm very proud of that. We have built a new generation of organizers and, and operatives of color who know how to win. And not the the winning of years past where they were actually losses that got reframed as victories, that we're actually winning. Our budget has grown. Again, there are definitely times where I didn't take a salary and like relied on the generosity of my family in order to eat. <laughs> and pay my bills. And now we are looking to raise between 10 and $15 million over the next couple of weeks for this runoff, these two U.S. Senate runoffs that we have in Georgia. So we're in a very different position than we were six years ago. Tell me about your experience with Stacey's run for governor. Having your founder make that kind of historic run and fall short must have been quite an experience. What was your lens on that? Yeah, I mean, having the entire country, actually the entire world, watch a governor's race be stolen and no one be held accountable. Like there was a theft, a crime against democracy that happened that we all witnessed. Still, To this day, folks have not been held accountable for it. So it was hard to watch. Uh, It's hard to watch media and press and people pretend to care about democracy, to pretend to care about one person, one vote, but refuse to cover the fact that the chief elections officer for the state was going to be responsible for counting the votes (laughs) in his own election and that no one wanted to cover it until Halloween, a few days before the election. And only then they wanted to cover it in the context of the horse race, right? Who knows? Is Brian going to count every vote, right? Is he going to keep his thumb on the scale? Is it going to be a free and fair election? Will it have an impact on the outcome? Let's wait and see. Like, it was very frustrating to watch that and very disappointing to witness that. One, I think two, I know that our theory of change and our theory of how to flip Georgia was also validated throughout the 2018 cycle. What I mean by that is that with purging 1.7 million people from the voter rolls, with closing 10% of Georgia's polling locations, with trying to close like, you know, 80% of the polling locations in counties in the Georgia's rural black belt, keeping 65, 75,000 people who registered in 2018 off the voter rolls, so new voters so they couldn't be added, throwing out ballots because of signature match, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That with all of that happening simultaneously, that he was only able to win his election by 54,000 votes, which is extraordinary given the 250 to 300,000 vote margin that Republicans had been enjoying in Georgia elections for the past couple of cycles. And so I was fiercely proud of my friend and our founder. What was different in 2020? Nothing. 
we chopped wood and carried water before 2018, and we continue to chop wood and carry water after 2018. Now, you know what, what was different? They say sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? And so what the vote suppressors, what the Republicans, what these white conservatives were able to do in the dark in previous cycles that got ignored by folks in state, that was no longer the case. So the injecting some transparency in our election system, our elections infrastructure, having permanent boots on the ground um, and organizing culture that is accountable, um, that's driven by numbers. We aren't obsessed with numbers, but we are very data-driven um, or it was not necessarily data-driven. I say we're data-informed. We're driven by our love for ourselves and our families and our communities, but we absolutely rely on data to tell our stories, to inform our programs. I think that that was also a difference heading into 18, but also heading into 20. Um, And then the pandemic. Georgians are dying. One out of every 1,000 Black folks in America has died due to COVID. 80% of the people who are hospitalized due to COVID are people of color. Half of the folks who died in Georgia are people of color. And we are not half of the population yet. 12 hospitals in rural Georgia are slated to close. One just closed at the end of October. Hospitals are not only the place where people go to get well, they're also the largest employer in our state. So people are dying. This feels urgent. We, you know, went through a summer of racial justice protests and uprising, if you will, which helped radicalize a bunch of young people, a bunch of Gen Zers, Zoomers, as we call them, who are talking about organizing, um, who are talking about the America that they deserve and that they want to build. And so I think that it's a combination of all those things, right? Long-term smart investment in organizing, telling better stories, ringing the alarm, shining a light on the vote suppression roaches and watching them scatter. And death and the urgency of death that's associated with it. And people willing to do everything that they can to save their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Chopping wood and carrying water. What are the programs that you indicate with that metaphor? What is it that's going on day to day? Yeah. We knocked on millions of doors each year, uh, have high quality face-to-face deep organizing conversations with Georgians of color, young Georgians and women. We make millions of phone calls a year, millions of text messages a year. Um, We have a number of issue organizing campaigns, permanent issue organizing campaigns that inform our work, right? So the black and green agenda is sort of the container that houses our racial justice and environmental justice work. And why it's so essential to us is because like most Americans, Black folks in Georgia, their wealth is in their homes, and particularly Black folks who live in the rural Black Belt in South Georgia and in coastal Georgia. So when these once-in-a-century, once-in-a-decade storms, these hurricanes, are starting to happen twice a year, 
And elections and GOTV are often in the middle of hurricane season. We had to deal with that in 2020. 2020 was no exception. And, you know, during the midst of a hurricane, there's often mandatory evacuations. So you got to get up and you got to run for your lives with the clothes on your back. So in-person early voting, that's not a thing. The mail service is usually suspended. So vote by mail um, becomes more difficult. And again, people often don't have uh, access to the basic necessities in order to survive, let alone what they need to thrive. And so the black and green agenda is to highlight the idea that, you know, big green organizations did not have a lot of black leadership and not a lot of on ramps for black folks and Southerners. And we wanted to do something about that. And our racial justice and civil rights organizations at the time did not have fleshed out environmental justice programs, despite the fact that Black folks and poor people are most likely to be negatively impacted by pollution and by climate change and extreme weather events. We do tons of stuff. Um, We have VIBE, the Voting Initiative and Brothers Engagement. It focuses exclusively on Black men and boys. We have a campaign called Oasis, and it's Our Aging Seniors in Society. Um, And the idea that just because a person becomes a senior citizen doesn't mean that they stop being political actors and that there's a way to build power, to build a political agenda, to organize around a political agenda that centers our movement veterans, but also just regular old folks who want to protect their interests and want to continue to be, you know, active members in society. It's a lot. It's head spinning to think about trying to keep all those balls in the air and, and moving forward. The backdrop to all of this is President Trump. The way that he affected turnout on both sides is inarguable. He got people out on our side. He got people out on his side. How can you separate that kind of turnout around national issues in a big national fight from the work on the ground that both sides do with programs? How do you know what your impact is in that context? I think that with a little bit of analysis, I think that we can help craft a narrative. But to be completely honest with you, I'm not sure where one starts and the other ends, right? That you can be really upset with Trump. And um, sometimes that turns into tweets and Facebook posts and not actually feet in the streets, right? Not actually votes. And so we wanted to make sure that that righteous anger that people were feeling or the anxiety, nervousness, fidgetiness, I think, that people were feeling got channeled into something that was useful and productive and that would actually bring about the change that we seek. If you were going to kind of lay out the team that we have in Georgia, the allies that New Georgia Project has, who else are the key organizations that make a difference there? We're blessed to be a part of an ecosystem. I mean, there's Fair Fight and Fair Fight Action. There's Fair Count, um, which is like led us in a lot of the organizing around the census. Um, There's the Georgia Conference of the NAACP with the youngest state president in the history of the organization. There's this group called the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda that was convened by Joseph Lowry. There is 
the Leadership Conference for Civil Rights. There's the ACLU. Uh, there is Asian Americans Advance in Justice, the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials. Yeah, I mean, there's a healthy ecosystem in the state that is growing. All the reproductive rights and freedom and justice organizations like um, Southerners on a New Ground and Sister Song and Planned Parenthood. And so the idea is that we don't need to be all things to all people, that we are in deep relationship and in community with organizations that have uh, an ethos or, uh, of, you know, organizing and building power, being accountable to communities, and people are taking their peace. Uh, I like to say that I subscribe to the gospel choir theory of organizing. We all have notes. And, you know, the more we practice together, the more in harmony we are. And if an individual vocalist needs to drop out for professional or personal reasons, that the note continues, that the singing continues. What's your sense of like why Georgia is running ahead of other southern states in moving in a progressive direction, in voting for Biden, in nearly voting for Stacey Abrams compared to certainly to Alabama and Mississippi, but also to North Carolina and Texas, which seem to be a little behind. It's investment. It's an investment in organizing, investment in these grassroots organizations, investments in candidate pipelines. Listen, North Carolina went for Obama once. Right. I mean, and they also leveraged a ton of money. Alabama voted for Doug Jones. I mean, and, you know, yes, his opponent was trash, <laughs> but like that doesn't mean anything. Republicans have voted for awful human beings before and they'll do it again. Um, but there was a recognition that we needed to invest in the leadership of indigenous leaders and the organizations that they helm, that they run so that. They can do the work of connecting the dots with community members about the power of their vote in this moment and how it connects to the changes that they want to see on the issues that people care about. Is there any chance that the Biden victory in Georgia could be overturned? Uh, yeah, there is. I mean, you have a Republican governor, two hotly contested Republican Senate runoffs that will determine the balance of power in the United States Senate. You have a Republican secretary of state that is now being bullied by members of his own party because he dared to count every vote and, and refuse to allow partisan politics to interfere with the vote count that because the margin was within half of a percent that it's an automatic recount. If it's a clean recount, we don't think that it's going to have an impact on the elections. We, the last time I checked, there was a margin of about 11,000 votes in favor of Biden. And like a normal recount never comes close to that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Normal recount never comes close to that. But if we're dealing with bad actors, um, yes. There is a chance <laughs> that the outcome could be reversed and it have nothing to do with the actual will of the people and the votes that they cast. I think we are dealing with bad actors. Yes, so do I. Yeah, it is one of the scariest moments right now with Trump refusing to step down 
that we've had, this is something different, the refusal to pay attention to the results of the election. Agreed. So what I will say is it's not up to him, right? Um, We had a rally on Saturday after the election, Voters Decide rally, and that nervousness is being felt by a lot of voters, a lot of Georgia voters in this moment. And I will continue to say it until people start to believe it. It's not up to him. I'm glad you're saying that. You have somehow found yourself in the very center of the political storm, right? The closest state and the state with two runoffs. And I know you're tired, but what do you think the prospects are for these runoffs? Here's what I know, that there is no scenario where one candidate wins and the other one doesn't. That's not a thing. That it's either both of them or none of them. Why do you say that? Because the squishy middle is shrinking in a place like Georgia and that this election is 100% about it's a battle of the bases. I've always maintained that electoral outcomes in Georgia are determined by one, who shows up, and two, whose votes get counted. And there's not a circumstance. The voter who would vote for Raphael Warnock and not vote for John Ossoff or vice versa, like I'm having a hard time developing that profile, that model, because if they are just racist, and don't want to send a black man to the United States Senate, then I don't see them voting for Democrats. Um, Not in this moment, not given the sort of ideological hardening um, that we've seen, the tightening that we've seen over the past couple of years. It also seems like the candidates have to degree linked arms. Yes, 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 yes. And because it makes sense. I know that Ossoff underperformed Biden in the state. And I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of familiarity with him in communities of color. I mean, Raphael Warnock is only the third person to lead Ebenezer Church since Martin Luther King was assassinated. And so that means something in Georgia. He's also like been at the front lines, bringing moral leadership to our movements for his entire career. So like he's taken arrest at the Capitol when Republicans were playing games with our lives and refused to expand Medicaid. As a young man and as a student activist, Raphael Warnock's got receipts. He's got movement receipts. And John Ossoff is a little less familiar. And so, like, linking them together. But he's less familiar in terms of his, like, movement work. But he mounted a credible race for Congress in 2017, um, has become a household name with white, suburban, moderate, and progressive voters around the Atlanta area in the 6th Congressional District where he ran in 2017. He also has the distinction, right, of running in the most expensive congressional race in the history of American politics. 
The idea is that while he has tons of enthusiasm in certain parts of the state, that to win statewide, I think that they can introduce one another to their bases and their audiences. And let's be clear, they are running as a ticket. You know the people that you've registered and mobilized. Will they come out again for a runoff like that? That is the plan. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, again, we have eight weeks to go. Yep. It's over Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, New Year's, where people want to be with their families in the deep south, right? Where there's a culture of, you know, minding your business and leaving people alone and letting folks celebrate and, and love on each other. And we've been through a really hard year. I think that there's voter fatigue. I think that, you know, we need to brace ourselves for impact because desperate people do desperate things. And while we didn't see things like white supremacist violence at the polls um, during the November general, with the entire country's focus on these two Senate races, and with these two Senate races being the whole ball game determining the balance of power in the Senate, and whether or not the Biden-Harris administration has a governing trifecta where they can actually get some stuff done, I suspect that they are going to throw everything they have at us. And so will voters come out again? We're going to work our asses off to make sure that the answer is yet. But we are clear eyed that it is an uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's the, the definition of a nationalized race. And that tends to end up going to the natural partisanship of the state. Where do you think that is right now? Like, do you think Georgia is just a, a purple state now? What, where is it? I think that Georgia has been a purple state. That the purpleness or the battlegroundness or the swinginess of it has been muted by voter suppression that has been ignored for so long. Again, an underinvestment in progressive political infrastructure. Looking at the numbers, looking at the demographics, it's interesting too because I think that there are a lot of like people who are way smarter than me. Or, I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> the false humility is not not my thing. Um, people who get listened to. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're getting listened to. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, but that certainly was not always the case. But the people who get listened to, like projected that Georgia would be a swing state or a battleground state by 2028. And I think that it was organizing. That was the accelerant. Like that was the gas on the fire. And that's why we're having this conversation in 2020 instead of 2028. Like many, many, many people plan for or anticipate it. You must be pushing seven years at New Georgia Project. That is correct. For you personally, are you wearing out? Do you see another seven years? Do you see another seven months? What are you thinking? I want to be as useful as possible. But I also think that, you know, our highly creative organizing tactics are one of the things that keep me going and that prevent me from being bored. So on election day, um, we had an activation called Twitch the Vote. Twitch is this streaming platform that ga- that's preferred by gamers. It's like YouTube for gamers, where people can go and watch professional video game players, esports players play video games. 
And we were on the front page of Twitch on election day with our 12 hour live stream. We had video game players. We had Beyonce's mom come on and talk about how important the youth vote is in Georgia and like encouraging our folks. Um, We had Dr. Mae Jemison jump on. She's the first black woman to travel space. We had some of the hottest rappers making music right now. There are tons of like panels, games that aren't commercially available. We got to watch professional video game players play it and give commentary on the power of the youth vote. And it was a massive major production in addition to our, you know, election protection apparatus and our get out the vote apparatus. And so we had nearly half a million unique viewers to come in and watch our live stream on election day. And that was powerful to me. Um, We've been talking about gaming and culture as a way to teach civics and civic engagement to young folks for quite some time. And people didn't get it. Our funders didn't get it, right? Like (laughs) no one got it until they did. It's stuff like that that keeps my mind occupied. Again, my obsession with winning and all of the different ways that we can win and all of the different ways that we can defend those wins keeps me going. So I I'm not ready to go yet. I mean, it sounds like you found some ways to have fun along the way. Oh, we have fun all the time. We just designed a new sneaker in partnership with Puma. That is a new Georgia project sneaker um, with the theme is protest to the polls. There's like little protesters holding their signs on their way to vote. And they are dope. They look incredible. I can't wait for the world to see them. Um, (laughs) And, you know, who knew that a voting rights activist uh, would have an opportunity to design sneakers, right? So, yeah, we have a lot of fun. Is there a question that I should have asked that I haven't? I don't know. This feels very thorough. It's it's alarming to me that's often the word that's used by by my guest. Yeah, I mean, it, well, you should you should take that as a badge of honor. <laughs> it has really been an honor to talk to you, and I'm so glad that we have you out there doing the work that you do. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, sometimes civilization lies in the balance of the work of people like this. So. <sighs> Not to put too much pressure on you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) That was Ense Ufot. She's at the New Georgia Project. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.